Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is wine logistics with my friend, Andrew Wallach. How's it going, Andrew? Super. How are you? Doing great. Please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Sure. Happy to. So I'm Andrew Wallach, and I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio, the Hawaii of the Midwest. (laughs) I live in Napa, California, a considerable upgrade from Cleveland, Ohio, I would say. No offense, Cleveland. You don't have rock and roll there. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Less rock and roll here in Napa. Considerably less, I would say. You guys, yeah, you got yacht rock over there. <laughs> That's true. And yeah, bottle rock. Yeah, we have a, we have we have you know I'm going to say a pretty de- decent music scene here in Napa. But I am the chief operating officer of Wine Access, a company which uh, I'll talk about in some detail. I'm a graduate of Kellogg's MBA program, so I got my MBA from Northwestern University in 2013. Very nice. Thank you. I've dabbled in management consulting, which is where I started my career, and then spent about eight or so years with the McMaster Car Supply Company. Hey, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about, learn more about you and your Cleveland roots. But first, what does Wine Access do? Wine Access is a retail platform that connects licensed wineries with consumers and collectors of wine in most of the states of the union. So it is a place where you can essentially go buy wine online. Exactly. Yeah, we we couldn't do this so long ago. And I think... um, Probably it's similar to what we when we were talking before we hit record. What the weed weed uh, logistics has gone through. <laughs> you know? I mean, where you really struggle because you just can't you just can't call up any old any old company and say, "Come pick up my weed and uh, deliver it here." But same with wine. I mean, you can't deliver it the way uh, the way we deliver most of our food these days. I couldn't have said it better myself. There are um, still significant restrictions on our industry and. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm excited to talk about is kind of how it's evolved to, to where it is, because it hasn't always been the way it is. And it's actually changing in my observation, you know, just in the four years I've worked in this industry pretty rapidly. But uh, just to sort of finish out, the, I'll, I'll finish out the intro by saying, you know, I went to Colby College in Maine, where um, where I played no sports and uh, was a <laughs> member of close to zero organizations. Why did you end up there? I mean, there's so many schools that you had to pass on the way to Colby Colby College in Maine. I never even heard of that. Fantastic question. Here's the answer. The answer is when I got my acceptance letter from Colby, what stood out was they said, great news. If you wish, you can spend your first semester of your freshman year studying abroad in France. And I thought that sounds like a really cool idea. Oh, there you go. There you go. So I actually, and some people, you know, some people spend time visiting their, their, their new college before they go. Sadly, I chose not to do that. So the first time I saw my college campus in Maine was in the middle of January the, as I was halfway through my freshman year, which is, you know, Maine is not at its best in January, I would say. Right. Well, yeah, they don't really, you guys don't have a lot of winter down here. Well, Columbus has, I mean, I'm sorry, Cleveland has horrific winter because you're right on the, you get the lake effects. It does have horrific winter. However, it never gets that cold. Maine manages to combine both the cold with, right. the, with the snow. 
it's funny being in uh, Michigan. I think we're probably four or five hours apart, right? Yeah, that's about right. And and what's interesting is Toledo's an hour from where I live in the Detroit metro area. So you get to Toledo, and Toledo almost never gets snow. And then you go you go south, which seemingly if I go south, I won't get any winter, right? No, you get a lot more winter in Cleveland than you do in Toledo. Yeah, no, that's that's about right. So you grew up in the Cleveland area, and then you just chose to go to Colby College. What did you study there? I was an international studies major. Again, I, I spent first semester abroad. I think I spent another you know, partial semester and then a third semester going abroad to different parts of the world and learned pretty quickly that international international studies was for me. Getting out getting out of Maine was for me. You know, big mistake. Oops, I, I shouldn't have picked a college in Maine after all that. Maine is a beautiful place, gorgeous place, which I love going to from you know, July to September. But Turns out the school semester is not done. It's like Michigan. I mean, I love it here, but uh, we have winter for a long time. It's Although it's 70 in April right now, so I'm not complaining. So did you go to right to get your MBA right after after Colby College or you work a little bit? I spent about six years uh, in management consulting. I worked for a little boutique firm based in Cleveland called Newry Corporation that did a really interesting type of consulting. They, they tried to help companies that had big R&D budgets figure out how to how to direct that budget to capture opportunities that might be years down the road. So they did a lot of crystal ball analysis. They did a lot of, you know, future trend projecting. They used to do all sorts of incredible sort of thought leadership conferences. They bring in really wow. interesting speakers from all over the world to talk about where do we think things are headed? And this was back in 2005. So there were things like, well, what, what would happen if oil were to hit, I don't know, $100 a barrel, right? What would, how would that change right. <laughs> the logistics world? How would that change the materials world? How would that change all these other industries? And we spent a lot of time kind of advising our clients on how to build either material science or other kind of related sort of hardcore R&D projects to try to capture opportunities related to those. And we basically were sort of the, the team that helped them figure out where to get the best return on their R&D dollar. Right. They were doing a lot of basic research. It was a lot of basic science. So then you went to Northwestern for your MBA? Well, actually, I went to, so then I went to McMaster Car. I, mean, I worked in the McMaster Car Supply Company. And while there, I got my MBA part-time from Kellogg. So I started in 2010, both in. What did that company do? McMaster Car Supply. They're basically an e-commerce company that focuses on parts. And basically, they sell you know, screws, nuts, bolts, fasteners. Really interesting, really interesting privately held company based in Elmhurst, Illinois. And I started in their Aurora, Ohio branch. So actually, I, when I came back from college, I was working as a consultant in Cleveland, then joined the McMaster Price Supply Company, and then later was moved to their Chicago or their Elmhurst headquarters, where I spent most of uh, the, that last part of my career. So you got that MBA, and that what was next? And then I got this opportunity here with 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 Wine Access. So this was about four years ago. But you had to move to Napa. Who wants to move out to? Dan I know, Napa? I know. What a, <laughs> I know. It was a tough sell. I'll tell you. I actually, when I start, when I first started, I was just, I was just, um, I was just consulting to Wine Access when I began, and then I eventually moved out here after we sort of got the right pieces and parts in motion. But basically, when I was brought on, it was to essentially help help square away a few sort of logistical hiccups that they've been experiencing. In some parts of their inbound and their outbound supply chain, there are a lot of really tricky parts to this business, and required a sort of creating a bunch of new intellectual property to figure out how can we smoothly and with a fantastic customer experience bring the wine from the you know winery where it's produced all the way to a customer's home, and that's something that's kind of at the time I joined, especially we were still hammering out. 
Right. So, I mean, you obviously when you got out of Kellogg and you had this great background, uh, you had lots of opportunities, I'm sure. Why, uh, why did, what drew you to the wine biz and what drew you to uh, the company that you're at, Wine Excess? Really great question. And I appreciate the question. So there's this great expression to figure out what you're passionate about. Just pay attention to what you pay attention to for really quite a long time, actually, both through, you know, friends and colleagues that, you know, at work and in Chicago, I was coming across, you know, more and more of the wine world. I found myself just sort of drawn to going to producer events that were being held in Chicago, or I would take a trip out, a weekend trip out to, out to Napa with groups of friends. And I just found myself incredibly drawn to the tradition of this industry. I mean, this is one, you know, right. human beings more or less have been making wine since well before recorded history. <laughs> it is one of the most historic and one of the most sort of culturally entwined products that are made. And the other thing I found really interesting about it, Joe, is it is one of, if not the most fragmented consumer product and consumer brand market. So just in the US, for example, there are more than 250,000 wine brands for sale. Brand meaning individual winery, producer, label name, etc. That's a lot of brands. Right. And to me, that represented a huge inter- and interesting opportunity because every single one of those brands has a story, has a history, has a, has a, deserves a voice, right? Has something interesting to say. They may not be wines that are universally loved, but you know, that's, that's okay. They're, they're wines that were universally by their consumers, I should say, but they're wines that were universally loved by the people producing them. That's something I both right. noticed and appreciated about wine is nobody gets into wine because they want to make fast, cheap, you know, bad wine. Nobody, nobody intends to do that. Of right. course, I, I remember Boone's Farm always making the point, like that. Oh, we won wine competitions. I was like, just be cheap wine, please. <laughs> right, and that's a that's actually a that, those are that's a great example. Well, you know, Three Buck Chuck and other sort of mass brands. Every one of those, there are teams of people sitting around tasting and blending and thinking really carefully about how do we make the best possible wine for the buck. Right, that's their that's their number one mission. Right. And meanwhile, like, you know, it's being sold to underage kids who bought it for four bucks, right? right. <laughs> I shouldn't be nasty. I shouldn't be nasty. I'm sorry, Boone's Farm. I, I do love you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I changed it to just Boone's now. So it's a little, maybe distancing themselves from the underage market that uh, I was part of at one time. So yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I always joke about this is in the recent years, we always see all these new breweries that open. I'm in Michigan, so we have all these like founders and all these brew, brew towns growing. And you know, I always I'm not a big into that kind of beer. Like they're like, oh, it's triple dead dog lager, whatever it is, and they all have a story, right? The story of their brewery. And I say that used to be the wineries. You used to hear their stories more. Now you go somewhere, there seems like there's a lot more beer places than there are wine places. And the same with the stories. And those stories are what helps sell those those brands. Because I think in a lot of ways, when we buy stuff, when you buy an Apple phone, you're buying into, I'm an Apple guy. Um, when you buy a certain type of backpack or uh, fleece, you're buying in like, I'm a Patagonia guy. I'm a, you know, whatever it is. And so no one wants to buy into just a consumer brand. Again, we were talking about before we hit record, when you grow corn, there is no story behind corn. It's grown kind of in an outdoor factory mindset. Nobody who grows grapes for wine is saying, yeah, we're we're a wine factory. (laughs) It's not the way the industry thinks. (laughs) And I'm thankful they don't. And I find something kind of magical about that. So 
I think, you know, I wanted to get closer to the, to, just to answer the question of how I wound up here, right. but I'm not a, you know, I, I'm definitely not in my heart of hearts. I'm not a, you know, I don't have it in me to be sort of a master sommelier type. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, if you put three glasses of wine in front of me, I can probably get some of the basics right. But luckily there are, you know, very talented folks, many of whom I work with who are able to parse apart just these most <laughs> right. subtle nuances and threads to these wines that, that I find incredible to watch. It truly is amazing to watch it happen and to be like, oh my gosh, you're right. There is, you know, shaved nutmeg as opposed to ground nutmeg, you know, or whatever, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. But that part was, that part certainly interesting to me, but I was more interested in the art and the science of moving things from point A to point B, which is where a lot of my career experience right. is in this industry that I think still needs a lot of help with that. Right. And inherent in this is if you're moving wine, you know, we, we all get directions, consumer or e-commerce stuff. And we always, on my podcast, we're always talking about the consumer experience has to be great. But does the consumer experience really have to be great for that sweater I bought? I want it to be nice. But when you're talking about wine where there's a story behind it, it really, the customer experience does have to be there. And it is something that is very fragile. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But before we hit that, let's talk a little bit about kind of the wine business basics. So when we were talking, we were talking about what, what percent is wine is made here in the U.S. for consumption in the U.S. So what is that? What is that number? Sure. So just some basic stats about the wine industry. So wine consumption has been growing more or less steadily since the early 90s. And current consumption for U.S. wine is somewhere around 400 million cases, a case being defined as 12 bottles of 750 milliliter wine. So let's call that you know, nine liters of wine in one case, so 400 million cases. And most of that wine is domestically produced. In fact, California is by far the largest producer of wine. I think it produces something like 40 to 45% of all domestic wines. So starting at a high level, of those 400 million cases that are consumed in the U.S., 300 of those are made in the U.S., 100 to 120 of them are made abroad and imported Usually those come from places like Italy, France, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, but most of it comes from Italy and France, both in terms of value and volume. And then domestically, California is, I'm going to say, four or five times the size of the next largest state, which is Oregon and Washington are pretty close, around 7 or 8% apiece. And then wine is made technically, in all 50 states in the union. Right. But the but the, the tail is pretty long. You know, Hawaii is not, for example, a huge producer of wine, to my knowledge. And most of that wine is purchased and moved from producers to consumers through what's called the three-tier system. The three-tier system was established at the end of Prohibition, and it basically says, um, as a compromise to help, you know, smooth the, the transition back to legalized alcohol, the federal government empowered every state to essentially make the rules about its domestic alcohol market. And they did that because essentially these sort of quote unquote social ills of alcohol tend to be local, meaning the problems that alcohol tends to create socially are dealt with on a local level. And it made the most sense that each state would get to decide how to deal with that. And then to this day, you still have states or even parts of states with extremely restrictive rules. You have parts of the country that are for what's called dry counties where alcohol may not be transacted. You have entire states, like for example, the state of Utah, 
which has very, very restrictive rules about what and how wine can move in and out of its borders. And then you have states like California, which, you know, California, of course, is a huge producer of wine. And it also turns out they have, shall we say, more winery friendly rules about how to buy it, how to sell it, how to move it through the system. And in terms of just sort of, you know, how the how those trends have impacted my little corner of the world. So direct to consumer, which we'll talk about the origins of in just a second, is a relatively new phenomenon. Basically, in 2005, there was a Supreme Court case called Granholm versus Held. And in this Supreme Court case, without going into all the legal details, to be clear, I am not a lawyer. Essentially, the Supreme Court decided that the, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution that says states cannot interfere in each other's um, economies trumped the 21st Amendment, the, the part of the, the amendment to the Constitution that enabled um, alcohol to be legally sold by basically saying, look, if you're in the state of Michigan, which is where this case transpired, right. and you have a law in the books that lets Michigan wineries ship direct to Michigan consumers, that means you also have to let California wineries, Washington wineries, New York State wineries, any winery ship direct to consumers in Michigan. And this basically blew the doors open on this part of the industry. Right. Yeah. Jennifer Granholm, uh, she has a cabinet position now, but she used to be the governor here in Michigan. So was she She was probably arguing for the wineries here, or I take it? I, I actually, I'm afraid I don't know exactly. I don't know which side of the was, law she was on. Yeah. Yeah. But, held, <laughs> held, I believe, was either a winery owner or a collector. I forget which, but he but basically was a person representing the wine industry. Okay. So so they won. They won. <laughs> the wine industry won, regardless industry of what won, side right. she was on. The wine industry won, and, and so that that allowed the local wine wineries to sell, but also allowed other wine wineries from out of state sell to Michigan consumers. Starting what year was that? That's two thousand and five that that began. So it's 15, seventeen years ago. So seventeen years ago, but e-commerce wasn't a big thing seventeen years ago. Sure wasn't. Nope, it was not. But but we did have the one thing, and I know you wanted to talk about these wine clubs. So talk about how that. How that impacted wine logistics? Well, so wine clubs, yeah, that wine clubs actually are you know one of the first ways that wine e-commerce kind of emerged, right? And a wine club is basically, you know, you go visit a winery and you have a magical afternoon and you taste the wine. And you're like, oh my gosh, I really I love this place. You know, I wanna I wanna join. I wanna I, sign me up. <laughs> I want to bring the experience home. And then the winery essentially, you know, gets recurring revenue from you for some period of time. I think the average tenure for most people in an individual wine club is something like nine months, a couple of shipments, something like that. But basically that's how it started was people signing up and saying, great, ship it to my, here's my credit card, put it on file, ship it to my home after the fact. And that was how, so that is how a lot of these, these laws permitting wineries to ship direct to consumer proliferated is it was under the auspices of. You've got a wine, you've got these wineries, you have consumers in these individual states far from where most wine is grown. Right. They want to have the wine shipped to them. So, you know, that's how, that is in large part how DTC began. And I'll tell you too, from a logistics point of view, wine clubs are one of the, one of the, one of my favorites because you know about the inventory well in advance. You know about the orders well in advance. You can time the shipments just right. You can build the shipments and far in advance. They're, they're fantastic from a logistical point of view, perhaps not that challenging, but that was how most of this kind of got its start was that wineries decided we need to have a way to engage people who are no longer sitting in front of us. So let's, let's kind of put, make them part of our community. Right. And you know, there is some inherent challenges with this, with getting, after you've made the wine, 
and you know, let's just say, let's, so I'll talk about here in Michigan. So we have a lot of wineries up in northern Michigan. I think I told you. I think Madonna's <laughs> Madonna's from Michigan. Her dad and uh, her family they have a winery up there. There's a whole bunch of wineries up there, and you know, same thing. People go up; it's four hours away. So where we go on the weekends. You have this great experience, and then you want these this wine shipped to your house. But that's assuming everybody goes there. These are not big companies, to your point. There's how many wineries out there? 250,000, did you say? That's how many wine brands there are present in the United States. Gosh, in terms of number of wineries, I'm going to guess it's at least several tens of thousands, but I, I actually don't know. But how did they get their stuff? In if I don't visit there, if I don't find them online on like Wine Spectator or some website or a blogger, it's really hard for them to get their wine to the consumer. Correct. And then you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of these patchwork of legal legal systems that they have to navigate. It's not an easy thing. So no. It it's not. and these aren't huge companies, and I know like here in Ann Arbor, there was a little, it's a little bar. I mean, I don't know if it was a bar, but it represented like four or five types of wine. It closed during COVID. Those wines were from up in northern Michigan, and you go there, and it's again, it's a very quaint little place. And you're like, oh my god, this is great. I could see them selling a lot of wine there, but it's it's no way to distribute. I mean, that's yeah, that's a tough that's a tough way to have to do business. Is to say, I'm going to open a little boutique winery in a, in a quaint city, you know? Yeah, that's and that actually, to be honest with you, that really forms, I think, one of the foundations of, you know, of Wine Access's business model. So a big part of our business model is, you know, our mission is to make it easy for people to discover and enjoy the world's best wines. And there's a couple of ways that we do that. And I think the most important piece for me is, again, I am not a SOM. I, I will never, I, you know, I will never consider myself a master of this industry, but we have a lot of, we have a whole team of people that we call our wine team that basically judge every wine that, think, that we think about putting on the platform. And their hit rate, it has to be a unanimous vote. Yes, everybody on this wine team that's composed of master sommeliers, masters of wine, people with years and years of experience, they have to unanimously decide this is a wine that we can put onto our platform. And that curation aspect, just like the little wine, or the little, um, little the bar, tasting room yeah, that you described, right? Those that little tasting room is doing, I'm sure, the same thing at a micro level, right? They can't have every single Northern Michigan winery on right. tap, or excuse me, on bottle or on top, perhaps. But they can't have everybody, so they have to curate and they have to decide. Well, we're going to pick the best of the best, and we're going to put those in front of our audience. We're doing the same thing, just on an e-commerce scale, which makes sense, of course, because again, you. The it's not probably feasible to say I'm going to open 30 tasting rooms just in my own home state so people find me. Um, even if That's even exactly if you right. join together with a whole bunch, it's still we'd be overrun with tasting rooms. It, it's just a, it's a difficult way for them, difficult for these companies to reach out. And by the way, I, I, I joked about this when we were prepping. I went on a winery tour in Western Michigan, which is on Lake Michigan. And the founder was saying, as he gave us a tour, he said, the best way to make a small fortune in the in the wine business is to start with a large fortune. <laughs> and, and it's funny because right. I know there's a lot of people out there who started wine businesses because they love it. It's almost like being a journalist or there's a, a lot of jobs that you go, I just love it. I'm, I'm drawn to it. I'm going to do it because it's my, my passion. Absolutely. And the other part of the, that's been changing, I would say this is more of a longer term trend that's worth setting up as background is 
30 years ago or 40 years ago, when Robert W. Parker, you know, first started publishing a little newsletter that he would send to friends and family that eventually grew to become, you know, the Robert W. Parker, you know, points scale, and now many other publications emulate, there was a lot of bad wine on the market. It was possible that you could go to a winery, even in a really prestigious region, and you'd taste something and be like, this does not feel like finished product, or this feels like something where the fermentation got stuck, or I don't know, you're pouring me a corked bottle and I don't like it, right? Like there used to be, it used to be quite possible actually, that if you didn't know what you were doing as a consumer, you could get stuck with something really quite bad. Over the past 30 or 40 years, like everything else in manufacturing, the the amount of data, the, the proliferation of sensors, obviously being able to use computerization of you know process control and temperature control the ability to ingest data into you know computerized systems that come out with or that that spit out an analytical response that helps you better make wine has proliferated around the globe right so usually places <laughs> like germany and france tend to as you can probably imagine they tend to lead the way with that type of industrial automation but that has proliferated that is available everywhere and in addition there's also much better winemaker education than was ever been available. You have UC Davis, you have these incredible onological programs that now train professional winemakers. And that used to be less common than it is today. So what I'm trying to say is basically for all of these producers, the small family farms in Michigan, all the way to the big producers in Napa and Australia and everywhere else, the average quality that's been produced has been ratcheting up and up and up as again, computer control devices and sensors and other sort of automations have made their way into the market, it has become easier to make great wine. So it no longer suffices as a small winery to say, look, you should try my wine because the quality is excellent. That's something that many, 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 many wineries can now say authentically. So what you have to do is you have to say, great, how do we help separate the wheat from the chaff, right? How do you get those really great quality wineries who are a notch above or who are able to just punch a couple notches above the expectation set by their price? How do you separate those folks from the 99% who are making perfectly fine wine, but perhaps not quite as special as that last 1%? Right. And I think we'll get to this in a minute, but that reminds me of something I just read the other day and it said, we, somebody made the point we're we're no longer in the the data age. We're in the curation age. And the, prob, the problem we all have now is this, this information age, this data age, I have unlimited information, right? If I go online and say, I would like a good red wine, <laughs> I would get inundated. And what I'm most likely going to do is I'm going to look for somebody to say, I will wade through all that for you and say, these are the red wines you should be buying. And that is exactly the position we hope to have. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So let's talk a little bit about, again, the logistics and the delivery of wine. Uh, what are some of the big challenges that are out there when it comes to delivering wine? Sure. Happy to talk about that. So wine is an extremely temperamental product. One, another pillar of our strategy is we want the wines to, we, we want to offer a satisfaction guarantee on every wine that we, that, that goes through our platform. So we want the experience of opening and drinking that wine to be no different than if you were sitting in the cellar with the winemaker, him or herself, enjoying the glass of wine with a great story. And, you know, here, you know, having the quality be as perfect and as high fidelity as the, you know, as the intention of the winemaker could possibly be. So wine is sensitive to vibration. It is sensitive to high temperature, low temperature. It is actually within a safe band. 
it is actually really it is uh, it is uh, at risk of fluctuation in temperature. So even if the temperature is you know between call it 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 68 degrees Fahrenheit, temperatures that I would consider largely safe for wine, if it moves around too quickly, that can also affect um, the quality oh, wow. of wine. <laughs> if it's exposed to light, there's an ex there's an effect called light strike which is where you know, if you have a clear glass or what's called flint is the color and that is, is the name of the industry and you leave it outside in the sun, even for a little, a small period of time, it'll taste like a, like a kitchen drain. It's, you know, it's really gross. So, and it's like, you don't, you know, as the consumer of the wine, like let's say you and I are opening a bottle of wine from, from, from 2010, anything anybody has done to that bottle of wine between now, you know, April 12th, 2022, and 2010, when it was harvested, anything can affect the quality that right. you get in the bottle. So it's basically sort of like it's, it's the it's the cumulative effect of the treatment it's had from the beginning. So and it also when you think about that is they want you know the the your winery that made this and just you know again they're more more artists than factory right they exactly they want that they want this again that high fidelity experience right they want this to be. When you drink that, go, oh, I'll never forget that day that I spent at that winery and that the, it was everything was perfect. And this wine is the reminder of that. And then it's a little bitter or it's a little off. It's whatever it is. And I always think I've been through this. I think a lot of people my age probably have. You made the point that you could used to be able to buy bad wine. I remember going to a wine store and saying, I would like a nice bottle of white wine for my wife. <laughs> I remember bringing it home. And this was... 30 years ago. And I remember it was expensive. So I was like, you know, I felt very cultured going home with my expensive bottle of wine and it was horrible. And I remember thinking, I asked this guy specifically at the wine store. And honestly, what we were doing, I'm like, we're too, we're too cheap to throw it away. We're poor. We're putting sugar in it. We're putting like whatever we can. We're making it into mixed drinks. Obviously that's not what the wineries want. For, who knows what happened right. to that wine from the time it left the the winery to the time it got to my table. Right. Right. And so being able to sort of guarantee that, which is really important to us, that's, that's a, you know, that represents a lot of, that represents a lot of effort to make that happen. And even I'm just talking about risks related to handling, right. Temperature, vibration, light, et cetera. Even, you know, even if you have poor quality control, for example, with your corks, if you have a cork that is contaminated with a chemical called um, TCA, trichloroanisole, this can basically, it doesn't actually, to me, it smells like cardboard, which is neither negative nor positive, but it's your, your nose, the human being's nose is extremely sensitive for whatever reason <laughs> to this particular chemical. So even a teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction that's been contaminated into the corks will, you know, will ruin a bottle of wine years and years later. So the point being all sorts of delicacies in the product itself, all sorts of delicacies in the way it's manufactured, in the way that it's handled. A lot of the quality on the manufacturing side has improved, but it's still not perfect. And then so the handling side becomes, you know, one of the things we care a lot about. So um, a couple of ways we've tried to sort of address this challenge. And there's, there's a, a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting, there's a lot of really interesting new technology around, as you said, this is becoming, this is no longer the, this is, I think you said this is the curation phase of the, of, of our industrial development. Information is too, uh, too, too much of it now. So we need someone to curate it for us. Right. So we have developed something I'm extremely proud of, which is essentially a system that every single day it ingests from this really great partner, this company we have called Weather Trends 360. It ingests a temperature forecast 
for every single zip code that uh, in the entire United States where one of our orders will be transiting. So let's just say hypothetically, we have our warehouse in say Vacaville, California, and the Vacaville, California warehouse starting tomorrow is going to tender a package to UPS to ship to San Diego. So that's about a two day journey, let's say. The system will plot zip code by zip code from, and we can we know where they induct, we know where the trucks go from center to center, we know where the last mile hub will be, and it basically plots zone by zone what is the high and the low temperature. So let's just say again that we're picking a UPS route that takes the five to go down the center of California where it tends to be a little warmer, our system is smart enough to say, actually, if you gave this to FedEx instead of UPS, and again, I'm, I'm using hypotheticals right. here, FedEx, you know, please don't get angry at me for, for saying that you're, you do, you use these routes, you may or may not, but let's say the FedEx truck goes hub to hub, going down the 101, a more coastal highway with cooler temperatures. The system will say, great, pivot to FedEx. That's the better route to go to get from Vacaville to San Diego. Or it'll say, it's safe to go from Vacaville to San Diego on UPS, but you may want to upgrade to a foam or a insulated pack, or you may want to upgrade to a foam insulated pack plus an ice pack. It'll make all kinds of recommendations because what we don't want to do is we don't want to, if we can avoid it, we don't want to tell the customer, I'm sorry, we had to elect not to ship your shipment. That's that certainly protects the wine, but that can be kind of a, a suboptimal experience. If it's like, gosh, I had, a, I had a dinner party this weekend. I really was expecting that bottle. So we're doing everything we can to protect the provenance of the wine. And it, it, I think it goes an incredibly long way when you're sort of, you know, put the, you know, you're putting the proof in the pudding. You're showing the customer, look, we care enough about you tasting this the way we evaluated it, the way our wine team tasted it in sort of optimal conditions. We want right. you to have that experience. And that's actually one way that we can enhance that experience through logistics, right? Logistics plays a role in that is sort of making that promise come true that we're actually going to safeguard it and take care of it as though it were ours. And of course we give customers, customers can always push the big red button, right? Customers can always say, I don't, you know, warm temperatures be darned. I want it. I want the wine this week and, and they'll still get it. Um, but the other piece to that too is you, all of that has to be timed so that it is going to arrive on a day that the customer has said, I will be home or I will be at my business or I will be wherever to receive that package. Because in the United States, you need an adult over 21 years old to show their ID and sign for a package with alcohol. Um, oh, that's yeah. that's, another, that's another challenge. So you have like the, I say this all the time, when you're delivering to homes, it's not delivering to a professional location. So uh, the address might be off. There might be a barking dog. There might be a beehive on the porch. <laughs> there might be a, right. a, in your case, there might be an underage person masquerading sure. as a, an adult. So you got to check those IDs. Check those IDs every single time. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that there's a lot of extra handling care that you guys have to take. And let me let me summarize it before we get to any further. So when it comes to delivery, first off, the the, the the high level is there's legal issues state by state. So you guys can't just can't say, yep, Detroit or Detroit and Cleveland are relatively close. They're different <laughs> states. Ohio is yeah. has di potentially different laws than Michigan, even though they're relatively close. So I, you have to concern yourself with that. Secondly, yes. this handling, that vibration, temperature, obviously has to be clean. You're also delivering an experience. So I can't open that box and see a whole bunch of dusty wine in there. I can't see anything that lessens the experience that the vineyard <laughs> wants you to have, right? 
I can't see the I can't see the corks pushing out of the top because they've been exposed to heat and the alcohol started to boil and it started to increase the pressure on the corks and and, and push them out. Yeah, none of that. It's again the, the bar is a lot higher. And then we just talked about the adult. This is an adult transaction, and one way to one way to change those laws right back to the olden days is if there starts to be young people who are getting their hands on this wine be through wine clubs or through your uh, platform. We all have to be very careful. We don't want to go back. <laughs> well, it's right. And there's a, and there's a social obligation that comes with that, right? It's like, you know, we take that very seriously. It's something that we have to make sure that we're, you know, in compliant with, but it's also just sort of the right, it's just sort of the right thing to do. I don't want, you know, I certainly don't want my- Bad for biz. My, yeah. I just, I, it's just not, it's not something I'm interested in, in the least. So, but there's, there's another, that, and so all of that is true. And then there's, yep. you know, you have to make sure that you have your permit, your, all permits must be in order. You know, we all, every single shipment we ship, is is you know is is within the defined boundaries of the law, so that's also really important. But then the other piece to it, another logistical piece to it that I think is worth mentioning is we you know we do not operate a business where we're just sitting on mountains and mountains of wine waiting for an order. That's actually really capital inefficient. We're trying to run a lean sort of startup, you know, almost a you know you could almost say a, a sort of a bootstrapped organization. We're trying to make sure every dollar that's sitting in inventory has a purpose. And that's part of you know, the sort of operational effectiveness. Your price would go sky high if you carried a ton of inventory. So that's, that's not exactly for anybody. Right. The price would go sky high. And keep in mind too, that you know we have to build in the cost of picking and packing, of inventory control, of you know the last mile carriers, which are certainly not cheap and are getting less so with fuel prices, the head of the direction they're going, but you know, have to have the, the right packaging that protects the wine from vibration with, you know the right, but you know, certainly the you can't be we can't afford to spend a hundred dollars a package on the, you know, on the pulp and on the phone. So we have to be really thoughtful about all of those constraints. But in addition to that, we don't want to be just sitting on mountains and mountains of wine. So to that end, we actually operate not only an outbound, just in time, or a sort of as the customer you know deem you know, requests delivery network that we have set it up so that both taking the temperature into consideration, as I mentioned along with using experiential data on days in transit, figuring out how many days is it exactly to get from the Vacaville hub to that customer in San Diego. Our, our, our system says 97% of the time it's two days. Great. So we two days before the customer said they want it, that means we're tendering it to UPS two days before. And then we're, you know, so that means that the material has to be on site sometime before that because we have to pick it and pack it. So both taking into account that we want to be, you know, good financial stewards of our resources. We also are working in an industry that I think to put it gently is not accustomed to just in time supply chains. This is an industry that is used to long lead times, is comfortable with wide delivery windows and pickup windows. So it's usually it's usually I won't say a shock, but to some of our vendors it can sometimes be a surprise that the precision we sort of demand on the pickup side, on the inbound logistics side, right. is in excess of the normal, I would say. And that's all in service of helping us both deliver the best possible experience at the best economics we can, but also making sure that you know we can't have an experience. Like if you ordered six bottles of wine from six different producers and they all wind up in the same package, but we're missing that fifth bottle number five or bottle number two because we couldn't get the pickup done in time, that's a horrible customer experience. Right. And so what you're dealing with is, again, we'll get back to it. When you think about the most things that we grow agriculturally here in the United States, 
those became almost like outdoor fields, right? Uh, I mean, outdoor factories. Like they, they might be grown in fields, but that we call them factory farms, right? There's nobody saying I own a wine factory in Napa, right? That's that's not why you got into the business. So so they are they are not going to let their product go till they're completely happy. I'm assuming they make it difficult. So you, you guys are right in the middle with the supply and the demand. You get the demand signal saying, "Send me my wine," and the supply is uneven potentially is uneven and that's and i think that's just you know the way the industry has evolved normally speaking you have you know the direct to consumer wine shipments for, not just forget about wine access just across the industry are single digit percent of the overall industry so for most big producers and wineries and importers their most important customers are people who buy by the truckload or by the container load, right? These are people who are normally buying huge quantities. And it's like, shows up, you know, if it's like, it's ready to ship today, tomorrow, you know, next week, you know, that's fine, right? <laughs> so Costco matters a little more than than the individual bought um, three bottles from your vineyard. <laughs> sure. Or the, or your, your, you know, your big distributor in one of your biggest states, right? They matter a ton to you and you want to make sure that everything's squared away and ready for them when they come pick it up at like, you know, a relatively small order, you know, for a couple, for a pallet or for a couple of pallets, like, you know, are you going to really, you know, rush to create? So we have to, we have to build cushion, shall we say, at every point, but not so much that we're, you know, costing us inventory. So that, those are all, you know, so I would equate it a little bit to, there's sort of a just-in-time aspect to the outbound side. There's a just-in-time aspect to the inbound side. There's a temperature sensitivity, route sensitivity, handling sensitivity on both inbound and outbound, but really is customer facing mostly on outbound. And what I find exciting is that in our little industry, very few people have thought about combining the two and very few people have thought about building inexpensive systems that allow us to make it all come together and make it all work. There are a lot of examples. So I won't you know, I, I won't talk positively or negatively about anybody else in our space, but I will say that a model that has proliferated as e-commerce and wine has proliferated is a very asset heavy model where they bring in a lot of inventory and just make it available to sell through. And that inventory, that model works fantastically if you're comfortable, you know, for example, having higher prices or if you're comfortable not being as competitive. We try to be the best price in the nation on any wine that goes through our platform. And that's a really hard thing to do while also guaranteeing some of the experience parts that we try to do, we try to, that we try to, to give our customers. Let me summarize this. And then I want to talk a little bit about, about what you guys do and what some of the challenges. So we talked about some of the basics. So I think we said 75% of the 70, 75% of the wine that we drink is from here, right? That's right. And that DTC growth really grew, it's tripled since 2011. And especially during COVID, like in many things, it, it spiked. All of us that were sitting around the house drinking wine and ordering e-commerce shipments. And then you talked a little bit about the changes in laws here starting in 2005 with um, starting here in Michigan. But what's happened over time is we do have some direct to consumer models. Now, one of them is DoorDash, right? So I could order wine and there's like DoorDash for for. DoorDash for wine, like I think one's called Drizzly. You said there's Drizzly, there's there's GoPuff, there's gosh, if we sat here and talked long enough, I'm sure I could think of a couple others. There are a bunch that basically that model, 
and that's a right and so that's a that's an inter- that's a that's a, 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 a sort of a variation of the direct to consumer model which i find very interesting which is that's basically again i'm not i'm not an expert on these on these companies and you know again please don't get mad at me companies that i'm perhaps talking about that they're taking wine from a licensed permitted retailer and moving that wine from the retailer to a local consumer, you know, within within state state boundaries is my understanding. Yeah, and that's I think probably very much like Instacart or Shipt, and and again, those were invaluable during COVID. We needed them. Invaluable. But I yep. think what we're learning is a lot of retailers lose money on those transactions. So, and they also feel like Shipt and Instacart could end up competing against them, and so. So these are potential. These are these are solutions, but I don't know that they're always going to be. Maybe they'll always be there. Maybe not. And then we talk about wine clubs. I joked when we, before we hit record. I tease one of my friends that he, he treats that wine club the same way he treated the record club that we were all part of. You know, we were, two 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 pennies for eleven albums, and then you had to buy like five other albums, right? And right. That can sometimes be what belonging to a wine club feels like, yes. Right, right. So so we have those wine clubs. Again, they might be the OG of this space, right? And 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 so now, again, they all have some challenges that we just talked about, which is the legal frameworks that they have to get around, the handling, they all have to deal with it. And again, um, that's, that's a challenge. I think that's also a particular challenge for anybody who doesn't have really a process to do it. So if you just say, yeah, I just threw that in the back of my car and I drove around with it all day and then I dropped it off, that's that's potentially you did great harm to that wine without ever knowing it. That the the adult transaction, another part of the legality piece, and then this uneven supply chain. You guys are right in the middle between the demand of the consumer and the uh, uneven, sometimes potentially uneven supply. So talk a little bit about what your platform, how does it work? So let's just say me, I want to go on and I want to buy some wine and I want it delivered to my house. And there's no miners here. Don't worry. <laughs> so the way that that transaction works is you basically would, you know, you'd find wines that you're interested in. And again, actually, I'll, 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 I'll go back to something you said when you were comparing us to, you know, the Drizzlies and the sort of the DoorDash equivalents of the world. From the winery's perspective, which I think is also something interesting to consider as part of, you know, part of what I think about is by the time it goes from the winery to the local distributor in their state, to the retailer, to the delivery person, to the house, there are a lot of mouths to feed in between those transactions. And there's also a complete disconnect, right? So, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on those websites, but it's probably the case that if you're the winery, you may or may not be getting the opportunity to sort of tell your story the way you might want to, right? We talked a lot about there, you know, nobody intends to make, everybody pours their heart into making wine. There are very few people intentionally making bad wine. And there's this real need, I've, I've observed this on the part of the producers and the winemakers, to be able to sort of connect directly to the person who's going to experience this and sort of tell their story, right? That's a, there's a, I think, you know, there, there are very few people who get into wine because they're going to, because they want to make their fortune, right? They want, there are people who like, have this need to say, I found this very special corner of the world. I am growing this product that I feel very passionate about. I'm making it in a way that is unique to me. And I want to talk about why I do it that way and what makes it special. That's hard to do when you are moving a product through, let's say, several faceless organizations. Yeah. So that's there's the there's the mouths to feed, but then there's the experience of it. So I know um, I, I heard this years ago, and I don't know if it's still true, but that uh, the number one seller of wine in the U.S. was Costco, 
And the number Makes one sense. seller of toilet paper was Costco. So I buy a whole bunch of wine and it's next to my toilet paper in a giant box and I'm <laughs> wheeling it out. That's not, that's not the, by the way, obviously winemakers don't, don't mind selling to Costco. I love Costco. It's my second home, but it's not the same experience as this is direct from the, direct from the winery. Right. No, but with this the experience is, this is a, more intact. <laughs> this is and this is and I I think actually that this is a really good point to, to to harp on for a moment. So think about that experience. I think probably many of your listeners have been to a Costco. I've certainly been to Costco. Where else in a Costco in a grocery store in any big retail format store are you going to go to a section where there are 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 different brands available for sale and on top of that there's a price. And on top of that, there's usually a little, you know, we in the industry call them a shelf talker. There's usually something in writing next to the product telling you where it's from, who made it, why it's special, why it's interesting. There's curation involved even at Costco. They don't do that in the steak section, which by the way, I'm sure also has at least several different purveyors who are responsible for the products in that section. They don't do that in the paper towel section. They don't do that in the cleaning section. There are even among other kind of high-end or high-margin products, there is no other part of the store where that happens. Why does that happen, right? It happens because it's a product that there needs to be some connection or there needs to be some curation and content to help get you interested and excited. And gosh, why am I spending 35 bucks on this, 40 bucks? So that's what, so, so a very long way of answering your question. If you go to Wine Access, there's usually a lot of long form content that we have created to help interest and engage potential buyers like yourself in the wine itself. What is it? Where does it come from? How does it stand out? You know, related to, you know, compared to other $52 Barolos, why is this one special? I can go, I have $52 in my pocket. There's a lot of wine I could buy. There's a lot of Barolo I could buy. There's probably a lot of Barolo from this year I could buy. Why would I care about this one, right? So we're trying to answer that question. That's the most important piece of the whole of the whole topic. And, and are you guys giving recommendations on this wine? So you would recommend I? You mentioned Barolo, I, probably probably above my pay grade, but uh, <laughs> you could recommend what I might like if I go on there on the wine access. We actually have recently invested quite a lot in our platform to help make suggestions. So that suggestion engine comes from, you know, what have you bought in the past? What have you indicated interest in the past? You know, what have you engaged with? That's that, those are things that we bake into that. What, you know, there's a, there's actually a filter now. We just, we just rolled this out recently that says, you know, so what do you recommend for me? Um, but, but by virtue of it being on the platform, it, it means it's gotten past this gauntlet of wine professionals, our wine team, you know, who are evaluating every single bottle that goes on there. And just by virtue of being sold by us, that, that represents at least that represents our satisfaction guarantee. It represents like, this is a wine we believe in. We don't sell, you know, there are some, on, you know, there are some online retail platforms that sell, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different SKUs because they want to be a category killer. We're not interested in that. You're not selling every wine under the sun. You're selling again. I'll, I'll say it. It's curated. And I think that's, a, that, that, that is, that is a play. By the way, I, I said this before. I love Meyer. It's like Walmart. It's here in the Midwest. During COVID, I was shopping for my mom and there's a Target by her house and they have groceries there. And I was saying the groceries over Target, there's, they're much smaller, but I like it's, it's fewer opportunities for peanut butter. I can't buy 30 different peanut butters, but I only want one peanut butter. And I, I was calling Target's groceries 
curated because it just it was easier. I I I felt like when I go there, I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. I like the bread they have here. There's not 75 kinds. There's four or five, whatever it is, more than enough. So anyway, if so, you guys, if I go online, I can buy this. And getting back to it, you have two customers. You have to serve the wineries. You have to convince them, hey, we're a good outlet for you. And then you also have to you you have us, the consumers. How do you manage that? That's a good question. So with wineries. There's this, as I said, this hunger, I think, among people who take their craft very seriously to be able to have their story be known, just, just, to, just to hear it sort of from the horse's mouth. And on the consumer side, I also think that there's interest in knowing it, right? If I'm going to feel good ponying up, again, pick a number, $30, $50, $10 for this bottle of wine, I, I sort of want to know that there was a, a professional, credentialed, experienced team behind it people who grew the grapes, the people who took care of the grapes, the people who harvested the grapes, people who fermented them and turned them into a, an ingestible product. Every single, I, I want to have confidence that, that that team is there, that that team, you know, it's not just, again, some faceless organization or what you call a factory field. So that's something that's very important to the consumer and to the, to the, um, to the producer. The producers, interestingly, are often, you know, kind of on the smaller side. We do work with, you know, with huge brands, you know, with the Silver Oaks of the world, which is a extremely accomplished, extremely high quality and, you know, fairly large brand. And then we work with mom and pop uh, organizations that that only sell a couple of wines. Yeah, you give them the opportunity to be found by a larger audience, which is good. No, that's exactly right. One one of my favorite producers of all time is that there's a champagne producer that we work with in, in France, obviously. And, you know, we're the only place that they work with in the United States. And, you know, they have this incredible story and it's, an, it's, a, it's this, this historic property. It's been around forever. And they, they tell us that they, they really like the, you know, the stories that we tell, right? That the team of writers that, you know, that works on our behalf to create this content to them, it, they, you know, we do this incredible job of showcasing. And that's, that's kind of the most important side of the, on the vendor side is like, do we do a good job? Are we, is, is there a high fidelity, interesting story that helps, helps the vendor stand out in the industry? Right. Excellent. So who's your sweet spot? Who do you guys sell to? Um, who's like your, the customer that says, yeah, I mean, your demographic that you shoot for? That's an interesting question. We, I mean, we've, we've really in the pandemic, especially have diversified pretty widely. I would say the groups that are interested in, in, in wine, I would say that the, the, I'm going to I'm going to do a poor job of defining the target sort of demographically. I'll define them maybe a little more subjectively, which is that, you know, I'm a person who's only recently gotten into wine. I think I mentioned only the past four years of my career. Four years ago, if you had put four glasses of wine in front of me and went, Andrew, this one has got, you know, traces of black peppercorn, and this one's got red fruit and black fruit, I would have said, amazing, you know, incredible. I'm really happy that you can pick those things out. And help me help me by picking the one you think is best and, right. you know, have that be the wine that, that, that I end up getting. So for people who know they like wine, know that they want to share wine, are interested in the stories about wine, but themselves, you know, don't have the, you know, don't have multiple hours a week to read, you know, the most recent edition of Wine Spectator or Decanter Magazine. It's a great way of basically digesting down to just like, here's the most important stuff. These are the wines that we think. If you like, you know, just tell us anything you like about wine. Do you know what you like to pair it with? Do you know the styles of wine you like, the regions you like? Just tell us anything at all. And we'll offer, you know, just by virtue of the fact that it's here, that's got our recommendation for a wine that you might enjoy. 
Yeah. So people who want to have that thinking done, like the needle in the haystack finding, which if you go to a big brick and mortar, I find overwhelming. That's the person, the person who values that a lot. That's our target. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I've been that guy. Like I go to a wine place by my house. If I'm going somewhere, like going to a party, I'll say to, I, I said, yeah, I want this pick me out a red wine, pick me out two, right? Two different ones. And I never, I never trust myself to go buy what I'll buy for my house. I don't care that much. I'm, I picked a few wines that I liked over time and that's all I ever have. But I think if you're giving a gift, you always kind of want to, you know, go above and beyond the stuff you might have at your house. But absolutely. And then, and then there's all kinds of different. So one of the ways that we do that too, is you know, so actually the New York times wire cutter, voted our wine club the best wine club in the u.s in their most recent edition that came out a couple of months ago very nice and so it's like if you just want to take your hands off the controls and just say you know give me what you got and that's those are options that we offer too that just basically say for people who know they want quality and know they want to pay a fair price for quality you know you can if you and i went to a wine shop and was like, here's 400 bucks give us the best bottle you got i'm willing to bet you that we'd like it but wouldn't we feel better if we'd found one bottle for 30 bucks that we like just as much. <laughs> yeah. And then we take the other, you know, 370 bucks and, you know, did something else with it. We'd feel a lot better about that, I think. Exactly. So what I'll do, Andrew, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, I'll put a link to Wine Access and any other links you give me, I'll put them in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. Maybe join your wine club or, or take a look. But I think it's very interesting what you talk about this wine logistics because it is, you know, a lot of times when I talked about alcohol, uh, we didn't talk about alcohol. We talked about this 10% of the alcohol. Yeah. But it's it's the one that is more sensitive to handling. It's more important that there be a consumer experience, which, by the way, that comes up constantly on my podcast when we talk about the customer experience, the consumer experience, because it's important, but really probably more important in goods that are almost like a luxury, where if I just spent some good money on wine, I don't want it coming in a in a box that looks really unattractive and i feel like oh is that the, is that the fine wine you got it, you know and you're pulling it out of these crappy boxes and somebody's like oh it doesn't look that good to me the customer experience suffers too much but agreed anyway i really appreciate you coming in and talking to us about wine logistics anytime andrew thank you so much what i'll do is i'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you and thank you very much thank you it's been a pleasure Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.